So I want to share a message, and I've titled it Living in Balance. And um, a number of years ago, I, I needed some uh, tires for my car. My tires are worn out, and I said, oh, okay. You know, tires are something like you look at me like you really don't want to buy them because you know they're going to be expensive. You're like, ah, oh, I can get another month out of these. Or well, I had to get them. So I go to the tire place. I get my tires put on. It's all good. I'm driving away and everything's fine. I don't know what it is about new tires. It makes you feel like your car is riding better. You know what I mean? Like, wow, I can't believe the difference. You know what I mean? And so I'm driving, and then, and then I uh, got a little further away from the tire place, and I picked up my speed, and all of a sudden, my whole car started to shake. I was like, oh, no, I pulled over real quick, and I f- kind of figured maybe they didn't put one tire on properly. Maybe they didn't tighten it down. So I... Uh, I very slowly drove back because I noticed when I went slower, it didn't shake as much. And it was fine when I left. But, so I go back and uh, I said to the guys, I said, man, this car was like shaking. I don't know what happened. And uh, you know those little weights that they put on your tire? They're important, you know? <laughs> and um, there's a reason for them. And uh, the weights had fallen off. <laughs> and so my car was all like wacky. So... Um, but I want to talk to you about being in balance. And uh, Pastor Tony uh, has been sharing out of Ephesians for the uh, past number of weeks, uh, covering Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. And there's really two main themes that kind of run through Ephesians. Ephesians. And it's Christ has reconciled all creation to himself and to God. Through the work of the cross, he's brought all creation back to himself. And Christ has united people from all nations to himself and to one another. And it's a thing that we call the church. And this is what, um, this is what Paul's really addressing uh, in the book of Ephesians. And these great deeds or great ideas are accomplished through the powerful, sovereign, and free working uh, of, of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they're recognized and received by, uh, by faith, by grace alone, through faith. Um, in light of the great truths that uh, Christians are to lead lives that are fitting and a tribute. I actually, um, well, I'll get to that in a second. The, uh, so continuing on, the theme of Ephesians is the church is actually a living organism, the actual embodiment of the living Christ. It's, it's amazing that God has left his message in the gospel in the hands of you and I to share with this world that we live in. And it's key to understand that our personal relationship with Jesus and how we live with our fellow Christians and brothers and sisters in Christ should be in a nurturing, ministering, loving relationship. That's why the church has been created. The church is not an institution. If you'd ask the world, you know, what is, what is the church? They'd probably say, well, church is an institution in our culture. But no, it's really a, it's a body and it's a family and it's, it's, it's something that God has put together for a unique purpose. So Paul begins to address the reason uh, for the church. And it helps us not to think of our church in terms of buildings and programs and activities, but actually see ourselves as, you know, one another as living expressions of Christ. And God expresses his glory through our lives, which totally amazes me also. Um, But he challenges us in these these passages that we're going to look at that we're to live our lives worthy of the calling. Worthy of the adoption and the holiness that unity is supposed to be part of, of who we are and what we do. In Ephesians, Paul has spent the first three chapters speaking about this incalculable 
uh, riches that are found in Christ. And one of those riches that he talks about, incalculable just really means you can't really count them. They're, you know, too great to be counted. It's a unity. That's what we're going to begin to talk about this morning is a unity that we find in Christ. It's brought about by the work of, 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 of the cross and Jesus and God's power in our lives, the Holy Spirit. And Pastor Tony has done an excellent job the last few weeks. If you missed any of those messages, I want to encourage you. He's really, because Ephesians is a deep book. There's some tremendous truth that's in there. And it's not a fast read. And so Pastor Tony has taken the time to really explain to us uh, what's being said there. It talks about being elected and chosen, predestined, heirs, saved, redeemed, reconciled. And then God begins to talk about being a part of the family that he's forming. Commentator Clarlene Snodgrass, and I'm not making that up, that's his name, all right, said, no passage is more descriptive of the church in action than Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And so we'll begin this this morning, and Pastor Tony will continue next week. So in today's passage, Paul make, takes, makes a shift in his teaching to speak about the practical truths of what the church is and who we are and what we're supposed to be. He uh, gives instructions, knowledge that helps us really uh, better operate as a church, which is his body, which Jesus is ahead. I, um, I wanted to try to illustrate this this morning to you, but I couldn't get a hold of what I needed, so I'll just try to describe it. You ever see those old balance weights and balances? Okay, all right, you're familiar with that. Some of you younger folks, I got no idea. Everything digital now, just draw your meat on the thing, you know, whatever. Uh, but um, the balance between knowledge and doctrine and how it's practiced through truth and lifestyle. And this is what Paul's addressing. So he begins to turn the corner, so to speak, or really begins, this is known as kind of a hinge chapter. We take what we've uh, learned of who we are in Christ and all that Christ has done for us and, and the amazing things. And now he's going to try to teach us how to live it out, all right? Because that's what we've been called to do. And so I want to read uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and it says, I therefore, a prisoner of the, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And this is what we're going to talk about today. So when Paul says, I therefore, Pastor Tony says, there's always a reason. You got to ask, therefore, you got to look back and say, you know, it's like a bridge that, 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 that connects the uh, former passage to where you're going today. So Paul's doing that. And he says, um, you know, and we want to talk about how to balance out our daily living. We got these heavy truths in chapters one through three that if I was to put them on the scale, they'd They'd weigh the scale down. But then Paul begins to tell us what we need to do to balance it out. See, there's a balance between our doctrine and our lifestyle. And they should be in equal balance. And Paul identifies himself as a prisoner for the Lord. We know that he was under house arrest when he wrote this passage for two years in Rome. When he starts the book, he says he's an apostle. And that's what he was. But now he's a prisoner of Christ. He's living under house arrest. And he begins with a strong appeal, and he uses the word urge, okay? And urge is a strong term. It's a strong appeal. 
What is he urging us to? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. I hope you understand this morning that every one of us has a call upon our lives. God has called us. He's called us out of darkness into light. He's called us into fellowship with him. He's called us to have an impact in the world that we live in. He's called us to live together in unity as a church. And so he says that he wants us, he's urging us, he's, he's, he's really presenting it that you walk worthy in a manner. Now walking is to live your life. So Paul's saying that we should live our lives worthy of our calling. Jesus called us in chapters one through three, we see what that all involves. And now Paul begins to lay out a kind of overarching principle uh, that we should live our lives in a way that's demonstrated and challenged by what we've received. Paul isn't saying we should live our lives that, that they would be worthy of deserving of salvation. You, I hope you know this morning that you can't earn your salvation. It's a free gift given to you and I. But Paul is saying we should live lives as those who have been granted forgiveness and new life though we don't deserve it. Worthy is a life that's right and appropriate and obvious to someone that's in the church that we fellowship and someone outside the church. People should look at our lives and see a difference in who we are. I've had a few instances over, over you know, my Christian life where people have come to me and said, hey, there's something different about you. Wow, what an opening. You know, that's like, that's a perfect setup. Let me tell you how I was, how I used to be, and let me tell you how I am now, and it's all because of Jesus. And so he gives us that opportunity. So he says that we're to live a life that's worthy. We should live in a way that shows others that we have been made new in Christ. People should see the influence of God's resident spirit reflected in the way that we live, in the way that we treat one another. I've heard someone say that external uh, behavior is determined by your internal disposition. What's going on inside of us comes out of us, comes out of our life. And Jesus changes us from the inside out. I don't know about you, before I really became a, like a full-on believer, I tried to change my lifestyle. I knew I was messing up bad, you know? I knew I was on the wrong path, and I was like, oh, I'm just going to do this, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to be a good guy, you know? And I tried that for about two weeks. <laughs> I couldn't keep it up, man. Just no way. But when Jesus stepped into my life, and he made the changes that needed to happen, it, it's a process. I mean, I didn't wake up one day and all of a sudden, you know, I was this person. No, I, it was a process that God had to take all that old stuff out of my life and replace it with. Anything God takes out of you or removes from your life, He'll always replace it with something better. And so that's what I needed to happen, all right? And Paul is saying that our doctrine and what we believe and our practice should never clash. They should be in harmony and balance. And because of this, Paul then goes on to give us some characteristics. He begins to describe what it looks like to walk worthy of your calling. It's interesting because Paul doesn't, doesn't just make this grand statement like walk worthy of your calling and leave it at that. Now he begins to show us how we live that life. And so he gives us four attitudes or characteristics that should be evident in our lives. And I just want to tell you, these are totally counterculture. You want to go against something uh, that, that the world says, this is it. 
these are the characteristics. I mean, these are not things that the world practices. And so I want to tell you, it's not easy to be a Christian. If you think it's easy, I'm, I'm really questioning how you're living because it's not easy. I mean, it goes against everything that we feel and know and been taught and experienced. It, it, it really challenges us to the core. And the first attitude that Paul talk, talks about is humility. In the, in the world, humility is often viewed as, as negative. Some see it as an indication of low self-worth. But Christians should, uh, should look at it and view it differently. Jesus told us that God esteems the one who is humble. And Jesus modeled for us what humility is. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you want to be in conflict with God, just be prideful. He's going to come against it. And this is a difficult concept in a society that constantly is telling us to, to you know, sell yourself, to look out for number one. Uh, don't let anyone take advantage of you. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning, what is humility? The dictionary definition is freedom from pride or arrogance, the quality or state of being humble. Humility is often characterized as genuine gratitude and lack of arrogance. It's a modest view of oneself. You may have heard the saying that the difference between confidence and arrogance is humility. See, confidence says, I have the skills and I recognize them. Arrogance says, I have the skills and others should recognize them. So how does the Bible describe or define humility? The word humility appears throughout the Bible in various passages, both in the Old and New Testament. And so when we read about humility, we see that it's something that really, that God really desires and purposes in our life. Humility is beneficial for us, for God, and for others. Humility is, the focus is, is uh, a godliness, and that's what we find in the Bible. We're called to be humble followers of Christ and to trust in the wisdom and salvation of God. True humility is seeing ourselves as we actually are, fallen in sin and helpless without God. Humility sees ourselves as redeemed people. The humble person knows that they cannot receive, they cannot earn God's favor. They understand that they're not the center of the universe and therefore everything should not be evaluated or filtered through how I feel or what's happened to me. Biblical humility, humility is grounded in the very nature of God. So how do we practice humility? Well, Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Psalm uh, 25.9 says, we learn that God blesses the humble. It says he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his ways. So being a Christian uh, does not mean our own wants and needs are unimportant, but being a Christian does call us to an obligation to follow God's ways. Jesus didn't pe preach inferior inferiority, uh, not in the sense of self-worth. Jesus didn't teach us to let people take advantage of us and abuse us. Rather, he mod modeled for us how to be lowly in nature so we could forgive those who persecute us. He taught us how to rebuke and move on. You ever notice when Jesus got in a confrontation with someone and it need, something needed to be said, he had no problem saying it. He said it in love, but he said it. 
heard somebody say, having humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Let me read that again so we get it. Having humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So the second characteristic that Paul teaches or attitude is that challenges us in, is in gentleness or meekness. And once again, uh, you know, in our culture, meekness is kind of considered a weakness. It isn't about weakness, it's actually about strength. Strength that's under control. If I was to give a, just a message on gentleness, I would call it the strength of gentleness. Gentleness is a strong hand with a soft touch. It's a tender, compassionate approach towards others and their weaknesses and limitations. A gentle person still speaks the truth, sometimes if it's painful, but in doing so, it guards the tone so the truth will be received. Gentleness is not so much about natural personality. I've met people that I would say, oh, they're kind of gentle people, you know. But we really don't know how gentle they are. We don't know how gentle we are until we get the button pushed. You know that gentleness button you got? Somebody comes along and says, I'm going to push that. All right? All right. It's a personality trait and it affects our attitude and how we approach and treat others. Gentleness places our strength under God's guidance and control. It's a powerful tool in the kingdom of God. A person who has experienced the wonder of God's undeserved grace will seek to extend that same grace to others around them. And they will be soft and not harsh. They'll be loving and not combative. The Bible goes out of its way to demonstrate Jesus' gentleness. As a matter of fact, there's a passage in Isaiah that's prophetic about the Messiah that would come, Jesus. And it says that he would not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. And what that really means is, that's kind of, you know, it sounds nice, but what it means that if Jesus sees brokenness, he's not going to discard like, oh, they're broken. They're, you know, Jesus is going to try to fix us and repair us and grow us into who we need to be. And then he says that, it's, that a, you know, a small spark, he won't snuff it out. He won't quench it. I've watched those survivor shows, you know, where you got to go out into the wild and you got nothing, and then all of a sudden you got to start a fire, you're rocking, two, hitting two rocks together, getting... Well, once you get that spark, you can't look at it and say, oh, that's just a spark. Man, you got to start fanning that thing. You got to go crazy. So all of a sudden you're fanning it, fanning it, fanning it, and boom, it pops into something, you know? See, that's what God does. He sees the little bit that's there. And he doesn't look at it and say, oh, that's nothing, you know? That's not important or not really. God begins to fan it into a flame in our lives. Jesus said, I'm gentle and humble in heart. Uh, it's a strong hand, not the weak one, that must learn to be gentle. How can I show gentleness to others? What does gentleness look like in practical, real life? In my experience, it looks like love and grace and helpfulness and kindness. I've actually listed a couple of things that gentleness should look like in our lives. Gentleness puts others first and doesn't act like it minds doing so. Gentleness doesn't hate or throw insults at those who are sometimes doing things that we may view or perceive as wrong. Others may look, dress, worship, or act differently than us. 
but we don't have to hate them and insult them because of their differences. Gentleness remembers that we're all sinners saved by grace and we're trying to find our way in a very ungentle world. Do you notice the world's like, I mean, you're not gonna find gentleness in the world, you know? The world can be very harsh and we're called to be different. Gentleness extends grace, love, and kindness even to the most difficult to like person. Do you, do you know any difficult to like people? You all thought of somebody right away, didn't you? <laughs> Jesus calls us, okay, to be gentle to them. Even when somebody messes up, Galatians 6 one says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him uh, in, the, in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourselves, lest you too be tempted. That we're to bring restoration to that person in gentleness. You know, when somebody's messing up, they already know they're messing up. You don't have to tell them, you're messing up. They already know they're messing up. I don't care how they act. They know how they're messing up, all right? But we go to them in the spirit of gentleness and we call them back to the one who loves them. I'm amazed sometimes at, you know, how people can get from, from here to there. And, and you know people that have been like strong on believers and all of a sudden they fell off the wagon somewhere. Something happened to them. They bumped their head. I don't know. And all of a sudden they're like, what happened to you? You know, like, but the Bible says that we're to restore them in the spirit of gentleness. We're to call them back uh, to Christ. Gentleness is a soft answer even when the words may hurt. Doesn't mean that we can't speak the truth. But we got to speak it in love. See, when we receive a difficult message in a gentle way, we're more uh, likely uh, to receive it for the truth that it is. I've had people say to me, say things to me that were dead on truth. And I was like, but they said in a gentle way. And I was like, I can't argue with you, you know? And um, so Paul calls this to gentleness. And the third thing he calls this to is patience. It's no secret that technology and innovation have made routine tasks easier and simpler and quicker. And with these innovations and advances, there's an expectation that we now have uh, that we should no longer have to wait to get anything that we need. You need something? Get it on Amazon. Guess what? Comes tomorrow. I have no idea how they do that. How do they, like the littlest, weirdest thing, they got it and they're sending it to you. It's coming tomorrow. How does that happen? But you know something? We've become accustomed to that. Put an order in Amazon and, and let them tell you it's going to be a couple of days late. You're getting all bent out of shape. I, you know what I mean? Because we've come to expect it. We, it, it's, it. It's helped us to be impatient, waiting for things to happen. All right? And then we have the innovation of, you know, making judgments about right and wrong right, right on the spot. Because we have... You know, and I think it's a great thing. I think police officers should have cameras on. I think that they, that should be recorded. We got live, live news coverage. We got cell phones, people recording events happening in real time and actual. And we watch that, all right? And we watch the thing unfold and we already made a judgment before it's over. We don't know what happened before that. You know, we don't know what brought it to the point of what it is, but we've already said, well, I just saw it. It can't be, you know. And so we've, we've become a very impatient kind of people. So what is the common definition of patience? It's the capacity to accept or tolerate delay. 
trouble or suffering without getting angry or upset. The true test of patience comes when we think our rights have been violated. And all of a sudden, our patience goes out the window. All right? Somebody's crossed the line. And some people think they have the right to get upset in the face of irritation and trouble. Although most people consider patience to be kind of a passive uh, waiting or a gentle tolerance, most of the Greek words that are in the New Testament that, that deal with patience are translated uh, into be kind of a very active, robust word. It's not just that we sit there and just, you know, I'm just going to sit here and wait to see what happens. Sometimes we have to take action too, all right? For this reason, it's good to reflect on how does the Bible really define patience? Hebrews 12 once says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. So who's that? Go back to chapter 11 and read the faith chapter, and you'll read all those people that, by faith, the amazing things that they did. It's almost like they're in a stadium, and you're in this game called life, and they're telling you, go for it. Keep going. Don't stop, because you know what? They've experienced what it is to have endurance, and that's exactly what patience means. Now, so it says, uh, great crowd of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that so easily clings uh, so closely to us, and let us run with impatience or endurance the race set out for us. If you're going to run a race, are you going to wait for like the slow people to pass you? Oh, just go ahead. I'm running this race. Just go ahead. No way, man. You're going to let somebody cheat? I, I, I ran cross country, and I know you're looking at me. It's like, you ran cross country. <laughs> I ran cross country in college. I wasn't, I wasn't at the top of the game, but you know what? I, was, I, I ran with endurance, man. And you know what? I, there was courses where I knew guys cheated. They cut corners. They, that's how they got ahead. You don't tolerate that, do you? No, absolutely not, okay? So the word translated patience really means in this verse endurance, that we keep going. A Christian runs a race patiently by persevering through the difficulties that they face. I loved when they had a hilly course. I was good on hills. Flat, I was not that fast. But hills, man, I was like, bring it on, baby. I'd be passing these guys that were like, you know, way faster than I am on the hill. I knew they were going to catch me on the way down, but I was like, how you doing, man? Yeah, yeah. This is easy, you know? And uh, I'd be passing them up. And, and uh, so we've got to endure, all right? A patient person is the one who doesn't give up, who focuses, who focuses on the big picture, and they see beyond the circumstances. I think the King James really translates this or renders this best when it says long Suffering. I think that's perfect, okay? Because our human nature is not inclined towards patience. We must make a choice to build patience into our character. As with everything else, we need God's strength and his help and his grace to develop this fruit of the Spirit in our lives. These, these things go contrary to who we are. And so we've got to allow God to work on us on the inside to develop them. Um. And so I think about the patient teacher. Now, we had a teacher in first service, Vicki's her name. She had uh, my two oldest in, in fourth grade. She was the best teacher in the world, man. She was amazing. Matter of fact, we found a letter. We've been cleaning out. We found a letter that my middle son, Philip, had written about her. 
And so my wife sent it to her. It was, it was amazing. He became a teacher because of her, I believe, you know. But she was patient, all right? And, and, and uh, you know, she didn't, like, not all students learn the same way. Not all of us learn the same way. And so a patient teacher learns how to find out how that student learns and understands things and begins to work with them. It was amazing. My oldest son, he's actually preaching out in California today, so we're, we're going coast to coast, all right? But anyhow, he made a transition from Christian school. He went to Christian school till he was in eighth grade, ninth grade, he started public school. He had some tremendous uh, adjustments to make. And it wasn't that, you know, he couldn't handle uh, what was going on in the public school. Academically, he was having some trouble. The system that he was at, he knew he had it down pat. He, it was a different system. And so he was having trouble academically. And so they, they notified us that they wanted him to have him evaluated. Okay. So they sent him to the school psychiatrist. <laughs> so the school psychiatrist asked him a question. And we got called into this meeting with all these teachers and the psychiatrists, and they were like, so what did he say? His answer was, I feel like Bill Gates in a sloth's body. We broke out laughing. <laughs> that was like, and then we're like, the teacher like, whoa, you know. And, and the psychiatrist says, that's brilliant. <laughs> he didn't have a learning disability. He just was interested in other things. He could tell you the windspan of a TT fly, but he couldn't do math. <laughs> All right? And, and so students learn in different ways, and they had to learn how to adapt their teaching, and he was fine after that. They were okay with it. They learned that, you know, you can't just hit somebody with information. All right? Some people learn. What about the patient coach? Does a patient coach spend all their time with the gifted, talented athletes? I hope they don't because a patient coach will realize that those gifted, talented athletes need support around them. And if he doesn't spend any time with the less gifted or the less talented, then the, that talented person is not gonna have the support that they need. A patient coach also realizes that there's potential in every athlete and sometimes there's a, a person there that maybe they don't have, that doesn't look like they have the talents or the abilities, but if they're coached in the proper way and they're challenged, that they actually could become one of those uh, top leading, leading uh, athletes, okay? So they continue to instruct and work uh, with the, uh, the less talented. Patient believers see other people not in terms of failure or weakness, but in terms of potential in Christ. We're to have patience in our lives. We're to look at people the way Jesus looked at them and see the potential that, that resides there. Patience is, is something that we don't develop overnight. Not something that I, and you've heard it, don't pray for patience because you know what you're going to get. All right, yeah, but you know what? That's cool because God's power and goodness are, are critical to the development of patience in our lives. And James reminds us that trials are God's way of perfecting our patience. Sometimes God allows difficult situations so that we can, we can be a witness to others. You know, you ever go through something and someone's like, I don't know how you went through that. I was like, I don't know either, but I know God was with me, you know? And uh, 
He may allow trials in our life to bring sanctification in our lives, to bring out the character that's in us. Patience is another barometer of our relationship with God. And I just want to give you a quick three steps to help develop patience in our lives. First of all, we need to thank God. When James talks about trials, he says, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. Wait a minute. This is a trial. There's nothing joyful about this. Matter of fact, the Phillips translation says, embrace it like a friend. So the next trial that you face, just grab hold of it and say, oh, I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> because you know what? God's working in that. God's developing us. God's bringing out his character in our lives through that. See, we want to get rid of it. We want to like, we don't like to be uncomfortable. We don't like to be, uh, you know, for our life to be difficult. We want to just kind of cruise through. And sometimes God says, oh, and he's developing that character in our lives. And, and so thank God first. We're called to first give thanks to God for all situations because his unwavering love and support is going to be there with us. Count it all joy. Seek his purpose in the trial. Uh, we may endure hardships for many reasons, all according to God's will. And sometimes it'll cause us to experience a deeper dependence on God. When you're going through something, man, connect with your God and your maker, all right? Say, God, I don't know why this is happening in my life. You can throw in, I don't deserve it if you want to. <laughs> That's okay. God knows it. But God, I'm going to trust you through this. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to seek your, your, your purpose in this. Third thing is remember God's promises. Okay, Romans 8, 28 reminds us that God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to our purpose. Whatever happens in our life, God is working. So our patience uh, pleases God and helps to maintain a unity among one another and in the church. And um, so we need, we, need, we need patience. And the fourth uh, character attitude is love. The word here for love is, is used, it's agape, okay? And it's, uh, we know there's like four different types of love. There's love for intimacy and friendship and things like that. But this is something a little bit deeper. Agape love is a unique Christian kind of love. It's the kind of love that God shows to you and I. William Berkeley, another commentator, said, the real meaning of agape love is unquenchable benevolence towards others. Christian love is not, a, it's not an emotional thing. This is the kind of love God has for us and wants us to extend to others. The kind of love that we're talking about here is uncommon and can only be practiced by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our hearts. The first or the finest definition of love as God wants to show us is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I'll just read a couple of verses from there. Very descriptive. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes. Love perseveres. God wants us to develop agape love 
in our hearts. I'd never seen a church break up because people were too humble, too gentle, and too patient, and too loving towards one another. I've never seen that happen. But boy, I've seen those things not operate, and I see what they can do. All right? So God calls us. And then um, we have the, the, and then he continues on. He says, bearing with one another in love. Okay? Now, sometimes we're a bear to other people, but I'm not sure how good we are at bearing with other people. There's a difference here. And the bear is to put up with, to, uh, to endure something unpleasant and difficult. You notice that all these qualities that Paul is calling us to, they come out of difficulties. They come out of you know, problems. They come out of situations. And he said that he wants to develop this, and God wants to develop this in our lives. Bearing with one another implies a willingness to endure with other believers, despite their differences and our frustrations with them. And like I said, all these are really counterculture. You're not going to hear about this somewhere else. The, the world's not going to tell you that you need to be humble and you need to be gentle and you need to be patient and you need to be loving. They're going to be like, you better take control of this situation. You better, you know, and whatever. And, and so we see that. Verse 3 goes on and says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This is what God is after. He's after unity, all right? And it says make every effort to keep the unity. It means to guard over or make sure that unity is happening. And Paul doesn't pretend that this is an easy task and easy to happen. We have our differences. Did you notice that some people are different than you? Okay. Differences are not the problem. It's the way that we handle the differences that affects the situation. And talk, Paul's talking about being very conscious or making every effort. Christ-honoring fellowship is only possible when believers bear with one another in a spirit of love. We are to live in a spirit of humility and treat each other with patience and gentleness and compassion. Real relationships, specifically in a community really as diverse as a church. I mean, just look around this room. I mean, we're a diverse kind of people. I mean, we're not, we didn't all walk in like, you know, we're all the same. We're different. But God calls us to unity in our differences. I got to be honest with you. And I have to humble myself this morning. My wife is here and I need to be truthful. <laughs> she wasn't in first service. I didn't say this. No. <laughs> I'm not very good at some of this stuff, all right? I'm just being honest with you. I've got to let God work in my life just like you do. I've got to come every day and submit myself to the Holy Spirit. I've got to say, God, live through me today. I'm not capable of doing what you called me to do, but you called me and you equipped me and you give me everything that I need. And so I want to live this life out. And so I try. And that's what we need to do. It's a process. If you would have met me like years ago, all right, none of these characteristics were in my life. But God has slowly begun to change me and will continue to change me. I'm not going to make it. I'm sorry to disappoint you. I know you, some of you have a, a very high you know, opinion of who I am. Don't believe it. <laughs> it's not true. My wife, we, have, we had this book years ago. It was... 
it was called Life, A Church is Stranger Than Fiction. It was all these jokes about, you know, people going to church and things that happened in church. It was kind of funny. But there's one thing always stood out to me. So the, the husband and wife are driving home in a car. He's the minister and she's driving next to him. And he said, he, he says to her, um, you know, that would have been a good sermon if you wouldn't have kept saying, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Real relationships, especially in a community as diverse as the church, okay, requires all of these qualities and forbearance. This is based on the work of Christ and grounded in the truth of who God is and what he's called us to. I want to finish up this morning in Colossians chapter 3 very briefly. The Apostle Paul presents a practical teaching on the transformation that takes place in our life from the old life to the new life, from our sinful life to our sanctified life. And the, uh, you know, before salvation and the new life that we uh, now have in Christ. Ephesians 3, 3 says that we're, that we're hidden with Christ in God, all right? And he li Paul likens this to putting on or, or putting to death or discarding old sinful ways of life to the process of removing old clothes. In exchange for our old clothes, we put on garments, we put on new garments. Years ago, I, I, I like doing illustrated sermons. And years ago, I did a sermon on, you know, you know, the passage that says, God looks on the outward appearance, but man looks on the heart. So I came to dress the church. Now, I, I got to tell you, it was a time when purple was in and polyester was in. So I came with this purple suit. Yeah, it looked good, man. I got to tell you. That's my pride coming out, see? And <laughs> I had a nice crisp white shirt on. I had a nice tie that matched, nice black dress shoes on. And I began to share this message about how that God looks on the outward appearance, but man looks on the heart. And then I, at one point in the sermon, I said, oh, man, I'm getting too hot in here. I got to take my jacket off. I take my jacket off, and my shirt is all stained up. My tie is all unraveled and raggedy at the bottom. And I begin, and so people look at me like, and I took my shoes off, and my dress shoes had holes in the bottom. My socks were all ripped up, but you couldn't see that while I was standing there, you know? And so Paul is talking about that we take off these old sinful rags that we were wearing before Christ, and we put on new garments of righteousness that only come from him. You know God's got clothes that are tailor-made for you? You go, you go to the store and try to f find something that fits. I mean, I get frustrated, man. I'm like, oh, that looks terrible. <laughs> Can't buy that, you know. Nice-looking shirt on the hanger. Put it on. It's like, oh, my goodness, you know. This shirt, I don't know where they made it from. I don't know what they did with it. It looks terrible, you know. Yeah, okay. Um, putting on new clothes and getting rid of the rags that we used to wear. And every article of new clothing that we put on. Well, Paul talked about four of those things today. Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. These are things that we put on. They're related to the believers, really our interpersonal relationship with Christ and with the Christian community. For a church to be truly the body of Christ on earth, 
If we're going to have an impact in our culture, and this is what Jesus has called us to do, don't you think for a moment that the world's not interested in what you have? They just don't know it. And they should see it in our lives. They should look at us and say, something different about them. I don't know what it is. I've had people ask me that. You know, great opening, man. Something different about you. Let me tell you how it used to be and what happened to me along the way. And for a church to be uh, really what it's called to be, and we need to relate to each other as believers. Our interpersonal relationships have got to be lined up with these. For the church to truly be the body of Christ on earth, a genuine spiritual revolution has got to take place in the individual hearts and lives of its people. And it begins with me, and it begins with you. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you this morning for your word that guides and directs us. It gives us insight into the calling that we do have in you. Lord, you called us to some difficult things, ways to be, ways to treat others, ways to behave. But God, you've given us all that we need to be able to do that. All we have to do is give ourselves to you. And so, Lord, I pray as, as we operate as a church and we function together, I pray that these qualities would be in our lives. I pray that we'd allow you to develop them. And God, we'd, uh, we, we would see the importance of these and the impact uh, on the world that we can have. So, Lord, I ask you to do and work in us. Draw us close. Strengthen us for the journey. Bless your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.